Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
101.5 UMFM. This is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Elves, and starting things off for us tonight, an oldie but a goodie. That's Roy Hargrove, uh, his project, The RH Factor, and the title track from the album Hard Groove. And we're starting with that one because uh, one of my guests tonight uh, has a connection, uh, Casa Overall, who just released a new record on Brownswood that we've been playing. Uh, he Recorded with Roy Hargrove on his last record, Go Get Ice Cream and Listen to Jazz, and uh, has done some some work with Hargrove in the past. Uh, I got him by phone yesterday from his hometown of Seattle, and we talked for a while about that. We're going to be playing that interview in a, in a minute or two. And then coming up a little later from the Canadian Electroacoustic Community, Jeff Chippewa uh, phoned in from Berlin earlier this week to discuss the Jeu de Temps Time to Play Composition Competition. Uh, we'll be featuring the uh, the overall winner from that competition as well. Before we get to Casa Overall, though, uh, we're going to play something from my pal Curtis Noasad's self-titled record from last year. Uh, we do mention him in the interview with Casa Overall as well, uh, both jazz drummers and uh, run in some of the same circles. Uh, so this is Waltz for Meg here on 101.5 UMFM. Thank you. 
uh, played Go Get Ice Cream and listened to jazz selections last year, and we've previewed a few of the cuts from I Think I'm Good, Casa Overall's new record, and he joins us by phone to discuss that new album. How's it going, man? All right. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Happy to have you on. Yeah, no, I uh, I discovered you on Bandcamp last year, uh, uh-huh. in like January, February last year, and, and really dug what you're doing, and excited to see you land on Brownswood for this record. Yeah, man. Um, I'm excited as well. It, it came about pretty organically. Um, I finished the, the new record. I think I'm good. I finished that um, somewhere in October, and I emailed Giles the album, and I was, you know, I was really set to put it out myself, but he is somebody that um, showed me support with the last record. And so I emailed the album, you know, thinking about maybe doing an interview when I came through London or whatever. And he was like, yo, this is really good. And, uh, you know, if you need some help putting it out, you know, and it just kind of really came about organically and they, they didn't want to change anything about it. So it's really cool. Yeah, that's got to be a relative rarity to in in the in the record biz to send them kind of the the whole thing before they've ever yeah. agreed to it. You know? Yeah, I I know, and you know, and and I think we even had the album art pretty much done, and um, yeah, I think it's pretty rare, and I think that for me, I might continue to to do it that way just because. Um, when I'm making stuff, I like to really make it almost like I'm not with no goal in mind uh, business-wise, but just to, like, find what I'm trying to get out, you know, and and that kind of non-commercial, non-even-goal-oriented um, kind of work, it seems to work for me. So, yeah, is that kind of I like, hope to keep it that way. Is that kind of like, like a following your muse kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I never really understood the definition of muse, but I think you're right. Yeah. So, uh, back in the train up, I mean, you you studied jazz in school. You went to Bo- Oberlin, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Oberlin Conservatory of Music. Coming out of like formal training, because I, I, I we've got a school of music here with with a great jazz program, and and, and talking to some of the students, it's like sometimes it's a little stifling because it's so academic and sometimes it's you know a a good thing to have like some some boundaries drawn or you know some parameters to establish before you start breaking those boundaries what was what was your experience with with jazz school well i think you know that that uh that danger is real you know being um overly influenced by the system whether it be academia as a whole or just a single music teacher you know what i mean um but i think maintaining the balance of the two has been very beneficial for me so i've been playing music uh drums jazz everything i do now i've been playing since i was really little and you know in a very um organic way at home you know, I came up in a musical household, so because of that, I was never really stifled by the um, the academic rule book. You know, like it needs to be this way, not that way. You know, if anything, it was like good to get some kind of system to kind of wrap my head around because I've always been very 
in the in the way I approach things. And um, you know, I think that I think that it is dangerous. You know, I've seen a lot of musicians start out really free and then go through whether it be academia or just go through being a professional music musician in a certain scene, whether it be New York City or whatever, and and really conform, you know, and uh, you really got to be careful with that. And I think it just takes many years to become headstrong. You know, there's certain there's certain musical situations I don't think I was ready for when I first moved to New York because I was still developing. You know what I mean? And of course I'm still developing now, but I mean like. I was, I was just too influenceable, you know what I mean. So, it's just a balance, you know. You have to maintain, always remember, like why you're doing something, or like what inspires you, and and like what are you trying to say, or always be trying to figure out what it is you're trying to say. So, like you know, doing some self work or just you know, checking out something that's not music to try to find out like what's the message behind what you're doing, and then take the tools from the schools, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. You say that I was talking to a brain researcher recently and he was talking about kind of like the, the hardening of a person's identity isn't until like kind of like mid twenties. Right. So, you know, when you're impressionable and if you're, you know, supporting someone else's vision as like, you know, a, a drummer on for hire or something, it becomes that much harder to kind of like figure out who you are as, as a drummer, I suppose. Yeah, totally, 100%. And uh, I don't know, man. Like, I've always had this weird internal dialogue. Like, I, I talk about it sometimes, but I think that um, maybe it's because the the music, be, you know, got put into the schools, into the academic landscape that we kind of changed the way we look at it, like we almost look at it like um, the, the 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 masters and the greats that came before us, we look at, at them almost like we're not connected to them or like there aren't more coming, you know what I mean? As almost like there was this one time in history where humans did something great and we should just like study and emulate that and not try to find it again. You know, and I think that even for me, it was like I had to kind of have these battles in my brain where it was like, well, if if Elvin was here now, if Max Roach was here now, what could I do to 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 be a part of the conversation? You know, and that's not to say I'm Elvin Jones or I'm even a great drummer. Like that's not even the point. The point is that like if you're gonna do the music you got to really um, assert yourself and assert like your, your viewpoint. And part of that comes from really working hard to become the best you can be. But then also part of that comes from just saying, okay, I don't want to just be a follower. You know, I need to, if I have to say you have to become a leader. Uh, that being said, to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. You know what I mean? So it's, it's all like kind of stages of stuff, but yeah, yeah. like you you toured with with several different uh, folks and and you know uh, people who had established careers kind of 
up to that point, w- were there any kind of like great takeaways from that period that you have, you know, borrowed or, or taken Absolutely. through to your own career? I would, if I really, if I really had the time to sit down and, and write them all down, I probably, I probably got great takeaways from each and every artist that I toured with extensively. You know, it's like, it takes so much to get to the point where, you know, like an artist that's been in the game for a while making records and has a body of work and stuff to like not only make it to the point where you're putting out music, but to keep putting out music, it's like, it's so much more work than people would imagine on a creative level, as well as like a business just like, or as well as a character level. And, um, yeah, I've taken away so many things, even just little things of, like, uh, I think about Gary Bartz, right? Gary Bartz, I studied with him at Oberlin. And uh, for people who don't know Gary Bartz, he's an incredible alto saxophonist, um, played with Miles Davis during Bitches Brew era and, and, and a bunch of other people. McCoy Tyner, rest in peace, mm-hmm. um, and has a, his own career. It's it's uh, wonderful music. And so I did a tour with him in Australia, and uh, everybody in the band was, you know, older, you know, like at least 55 or older, you know, and me, and I was like maybe 30, early 30s. And uh, the thing about it was nobody had a, there was no tour book or like itinerary or anything. It was just like all these old vets didn't know what to do. You know what I mean? And like, if lobby call was at seven, everybody was down there at six forty drinking a coffee, and it was just the most laid back uh, experience I ever had. And we were just kind of like hanging out, and then all of a sudden we'd be on stage, and we would still be hanging out. We play our music, and then we get off stage, and it was just like a week of just kind of like zenned out, you know, lifestyle. So, you know, it's like things like that. You might not think that that's like a big musical lesson, but it just teaches you that, like, it just teaches you the time, you know, the what you learn from being in it for a, a, a long time and how to conserve your energy and all that kind of stuff. Right. But, like, yeah, I've learned something from everybody, man. It's crazy. Can I ask about Roy Hargrove? You, uh, yeah, you yeah. he featured on uh, on uh, La Casa Azul, um, mm-hmm. and in listening to that back when when the record came out last year, I was what I recalled was the RH Factor project and the album Hard mm-hmm. Groove. Mm-hmm. Was was that something that you drew on or like had kind of like yeah familiar? Well, with? yeah, I, I did. I mean, the thing about it with Roy was like I never played in Roy's band. And we never played, I'm trying to remember, I never played with him on a gig officially, but I knew him from the sessions and stuff. And he was like the, he was the one old head, not that he was even that old, but he was one of the, like, the 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 heroes of, of our music that would come to the jam session every night, you know, every single night. And, and not only would he be at the jam session, but he would be up, with the musicians, checking everybody out, helping people learn tunes, like teaching, you know, and uh, that's how we became close. And 
I think that when I started working on that song, it was kind of like the song already spoke Roy Hargrove to me, mm-hmm. you know. And and the other thing was that he hadn't been doing the R.H. Factor kind of project for a minute. You know, his quintet for the last, I don't know how many years, was just acoustic, piano, bass, drums, trumpet, sax, you know what I mean? And he was kind of pushing that, like he was reaffirming that setup and that style as like, let's not forget, you know what I mean? I did R.H. Factor and I'm like one of the most well-known jazz musicians in in the uh, in the other genres, but like he was trying to like pass that on too, like don't forget about this where it comes from right and so when i when i was working on la casa azul it was like man this song just needs roy you know that would be that would make it like that would really make it an official version of like the song that it is trying to become you know and then i remember after the session we recorded him and it was like you know, we got R.H., we're about to bring back R.H. Factor, Roy. You know what I mean? And it was just like this moment of, it was definitely a, a influence. Yeah. Uh, so we were talking earlier about kind of like finding your identity. And and one of the ways mm-hmm. in which people kind of determine their identity is it's somewhat in, in relation to others. And the, mm-hmm. the folks that you surround yourself with uh, within the, the jazz scene, I'm curious kind of what impact you know, someone like Joel Ross or, or Aaron Parks, mm-hmm. Theo Kroger mm-hmm. have had on you. Uh, and, and like, do you feel that there's kind of like their, their thing spills over into your music or vice versa? Absolutely, man. Um, I think that, I think that first off, you know, we're so much of, we're so much a community. Um, I think maybe outside of the community or outside of New York, people might not realize it, but like we're really one camp of people, you know, and there's, there's, there's sub camps or there's subdivisions, but like, we're all kind of, um, breathing the same air, no pun intended right now. But, uh, yeah, it's like, it's like now another aspect that question another thing that comes to mind is like yes i'm a drummer and yes i i come up with song ideas and and concepts and things like that but i'm really like one of my main strong points is like being able to make other people better or or to like take what other people do and and do something with it you know kind of a form of collage art so, like, when I have somebody like Joel Ross or Aaron Parks or Theo Croker co- collaborate with me, I'm not really telling them what to do, you know. Sometimes I don't tell them anything, you know. And sometimes I'll give them a very broad thing that I ask them to do. And most of the time, whatever they do, I'm fine with it, you know. I'm not like, let's do five takes and try to get the perfect one. It's more like, is that what you want to say? Cool. I'll take it and chop it and do what I do with it. And um, and they all, you know, they all bring a different thing. And that's why the, the reason I have a lot of people on the album, 
sure, on the one hand, it's good to have a bunch of different people connected to an album, and it's exciting, and it's like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's that's all well and true, but what it also does, it, it gives these varied personalities and varied, like, energies to one album, you know, because I could, I could have just got, like, an incredible pianist, an incredible bassist, and and just made a whole album with just them. But the, the, what I'm really trying to do is get all these different perspectives and different people's energies in the project. And I let that live as it is, you know, without too much influence, you know? So I think that my albums are really like a product of the community, you know, even though it doesn't sound like a jazz record, especially the new one, it's like, mm-hmm. You could you could probably market it as a pop record or whatever James Blake calls his albums, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, this album is the most uh, community. What is it? How do you say it? The most it's the product of like everyone that's around. You know what I mean? And so that's like I'm just I'm I'm super grateful to be the person that's like connecting everybody together you know what i mean it sounds like the process is a bit of like a trust exercise too that you trust them to do something uh-huh. and they trust you to take that and then do with it what you will in a way that honors them yeah yeah it's true and and it's funny because most of the time a lot of the times people come in in uh whether it's the, the studio or wherever we, we record stuff and i'll they'll do something and I'll be like, perfect. And they're like, what? Like that was trash. Or like, you know, let me do another take or this or that. And I'm like, nah, you're good. Like I'll see you in six months, you know? And, uh, and at first people, at first people were definitely like worried because they didn't want to look bad or sound bad or whatever. Right. But at this point now they kind of know my approach, my process. They're like, they understand that I'm not looking for a perfect eighth note run. You know, I'm not looking for, it doesn't even have to be in tune. Like, if it's out of tune, like, I can take that and use it as a spice and a piece, you know. So it's it's really, uh, it's not about finding perfection. It's about, like, um, organizing chaos in a beautiful way, you know. Now, I think it was maybe on Giles's uh, show that you were talking. You did some of this with gear from a backpack, like you would go to places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the backpack jazz producer. Uh, that's my my nickname. Um, so basically, it really started um, on tour as far as a concept. So you go on tour, you got a lot of time, and you got musicians around you. Sometimes you have access to great concert halls and rooms with grand pianos or whatever. So I would just keep my laptop, my my microphone, and my interface and my headphones with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we have ten minutes here and there, I just set up, you know, and be like, "Yo, play play over this or play that, play to this thing." And it's kind of like a way to just really keep the creative process going at all times and also to stay in control of the session, you know, because one of my biggest problems with working in studios was I wasn't an engineer like 
I didn't really know how to work the board like that, and I didn't use Pro Tools. And so it was like to have to have a middleman every time I wanted to edit a, a hi-hat or something, you know, it was like timely and expensive. So it's like it just comes from like where I come from. I made beats on a, a MPC 2000, an ASR 10, Cakewalk, Fruity Loops, Ableton eventually. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it comes from the beat maker thing, and I had to figure out a way to maintain my workflow as a beat maker, but to also incorporate musicians and, and that kind of thing. Speaking of where you come from, uh, one of only two people to appear on both records is your brother. Yeah, is that true? It's true, huh? Yeah, because yeah. I was looking at well, the, the guest list, and it's uh, Theo. Theo's on, is on both. both, and your Carlos. brother's on both. Uh, but then there's, you see, there's, there's other things. There's a few people that didn't get like official features ah. that are on both too. Okay. Like, uh, Julius Rodriguez, he's a pianist from, um, well, he's originally from like Westchester or something like that, but he, uh, went to Juilliard. He's like 21 years old. He's like one of the illest up and coming pianists in New York also plays drums and uh he played on my friend on the last record and he played on a few joints on the new record and he plays in my touring band so like uh there's a few people on there that they need to get their own feature they didn't get the feature listing so (laughs) yeah and you know it's more like if they didn't you know the feature thing is kind of like like from rap like if somebody really has a lead role or something but Julius is such an important voice to a lot of the music that I'm making right now that I gotta um, I gotta feature and figure out a way to feature him because he's super dope. So obviously he's he's serving the role as a pianist for you, but you know, as mm-hmm. someone who has an experience experience as a drummer, does that mm-hmm. like you guys? I would have to imagine have kind of some somewhat of a shorthand with your familiarity with the same instrument that maybe mm-hmm. he can serve in a different fashion than a typical pianist would well that's a that's a good it's good that you brought that up because my touring band we kind of joke about this but it's actually been true that uh everybody in the band has to be uh, a drummer too okay so julius plays drums paul wilson who was a co-producer he was the mixer he was the and he plays keys and drums and electronics in my touring band. Um, Morgan Guerin, he plays bass and sax and clarinet on my new album, but he also plays keys and drums. Um, Mike King, who co-wrote uh, The Skydiver on the last record and also Visible Walls on the new record, um, he plays keys and drums. You dig? So when we're on stage, we just like we're constantly morphing and jumping around, and, and the band is just like their face starts melting after about three songs because they're like, "Yo, like it's a new day. Like if everybody's killing their drums, then like it's a new day." You know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you know the drummer Curtis Noasad. Uh, I know that name. Yeah. Okay. So Damn. he's originally from Winnipeg. He's now in New York. And is a friend of mine, and we were talking about his most recent record, and, and you know he's the band leader as the drummer, and I was talking about you know kind of like as the drummer, you're at the back, and you have like the full, full scope of perspective, mm-hmm. right? Like you you 
you mm-hmm. see every all the players and yeah i have to imagine all of you it sounds like your entire touring band is is made up of people who have that scope or perspective 100 percent, 100 percent. and that has to shape kind of how you interact and, and create music on a, on a on a day-to-day basis absolutely and and just side note i do know curtis curtis plays with uh rax and cook sometimes yes yeah and uh and i have heard his new record i know curtis i just i just had a brain fart oh but, yeah um, no worries yeah man um it's true it's like the thing is the language you know there are many different ways of communicating music like like uh sheet music as we know it is just a certain way of organizing the the system that we use of 12 notes and 16 beats to a measure and you know what i mean whatever you want whatever you want to call it you know like that's just one way of organizing it and the sheet music is not the music at all the sheet music is like a compass or a blueprint or a a map you know and i think that a lot of non-musicians and even musicians as well they don't understand that that like that sheet music is literally it's like notes on how to play something that's it's it's not uh visual you know and so for us we a lot of times nowadays we're communicating via drum language and like electronic production language you know beat making language you know and so i might not even be talking about key signatures and chords you know that's not my specialty you know but i'm dealing with the that happy sounding chord that that sad chord or build up here, break it down there, trap beat here, ballad time there, you know, and so it's it's definitely good to be able to talk to people that can speak that language of of like I don't know, it's a different language. <laughs> For certain. The the album title, where do you put the emphasis? What what where, what word gets the emphasis? <laughs> uh well for today, um Um, think. I think I'm good. Yeah, and I'll tell you why if you'd like me to. Um, I think it's like the whole thing about the whole thing about it is about thinking. You know, in the sense of it's introspective. You know, even if you say I think I'm good, it's like you're you're self-reflecting mm-hmm. you're refl- you're reflecting on your own state you know what i mean and so uh it's kind of like the thinking part is the most important part because um it can lead to so many different things like you could talk about the ability to control your thoughts and i think i'm good can be an affirmation but then also it's like I think I'm good could be saying, I'll pass. Like, would you like another drink? And he said, I think I'm good. Or it's like, it could also represent the inner turmoil that comes from uh, not receiving uh, accolades or, or not, you know, when you're doing something and you think it's great, but then like, you know, nobody cares, and you're like, man, I think I'm good. I thought I was good. 
I swear I'm, I swear I'm good at this. Like, why, why is everybody ignoring me? You know, and then like, you can even get deeper into the kind of like spiritual nature and duality of, of, you know, being uncertain if what you're doing is the right thing or not. You know, it kind of had. It depends on. It depends on. It's subjective in nature. It depends on the the perspective. You know. So it means a lot of things, and uh, so I think I think it's I think it's one of those titles that when I tell people about it or like when people discover the title at first they don't think it's really that deep. they're kind of like oh that's an interesting title but then if you go throughout your day you'll realize you might say I think I'm good like two or three times you know it's it's a lot more common than you would think. And for four words, it's 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 able to say a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, before I let you go, Casa, I want to get you to pick a track off the record we can play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking that song in particular or an anecdote about it, love to hear that. Okay, so I'm gonna pick today. I'm gonna pick. Um, well, actually, okay, I'm gonna switch up. This is this is. Uh, this is Michigan, right? Uh, Winnipeg, Where? Manitoba. Oh, no, this is Winnipeg. My yeah. bad. No okay, worries. I'm sorry. For some reason, I was thinking of Michigan. Uh, okay, so I'm going to stick with the first one. So the song I'm going to pick is uh, Darkness in Mind featuring Sullivan Fortner. And the reason I'm going to pick it is because, for me, this song is actually the centerpiece of the album. Like, the whole album is almost like different songs reflecting different perspectives of this one point, you know. And um, the song also features not only uh, is it written over uh, Chopin, a great a great Chopin song, but the lyrics, half of the lyrics come from a, a song my dad wrote, and he used to play around the house when I was growing up, it was like his one, like, man, this is a hit. So I took a couple of those lyrics and fleshed it out. And I just think it's, everybody seems to resonate to this song. So for me, this is the unsung single. All right. Well, we'll give that a listen. Uh, so best place to keep tabs on you on social media, where are you most active and where should people follow you? Um, that would be at Casa overall on Instagram. K A S S A O V E R A L L, and um, I'm pretty much Casa overall and everything. But Instagram, I'm on there every day. That's where you're at. Well, thanks very much for taking some time out of your day to talk about the record. Really appreciate it, and, and really dig what you're doing. Thank you so much, man. Anytime. Yeah.
Again, the Canadian Electroacoustic Communities Composition Contest, Jeux de Temps, time to play. The winners have been announced. We are going to be featuring the compositions. And joining me once again by phone, Jeff Chippewa. How's it going? Hi, Michael. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm happy to have you back on. Uh, happy to spotlight uh, what the, the CEC participants have uh, cooked up for us this year. Um, I, I'm curious, what have there been any kind of developments within the organization over the past year? Like any, any sort of new endeavors or, or kind of anything you wanted to spotlight? Uh, well, <laughs> you've actually hit the nail right on the head. Um, uh, spotlight uh, is, is on Sonus this year, which is the online um, uh, media tech or jukebox for electroacoustic and related practices. So all of the the works that are submitted to JTTP are are featured in that uh, every single year. The 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 winners obviously get um, a bit more uh, attention in terms of the promotion and everything we do. But everyone who submits a, a work to this project is 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 found in Sonus. So you can go on to Sonus.ca and listen to all the works that have been submitted to Sonus. Uh, sorry, to JTTP since 2000 when the, when the CEC started uh, managing it. And we did a big overhaul on the on the interface of it this year. It had some sort of um, some old, the interface had, had had gotten a bit clunky over the years, and so we we did some modifications over the last couple of years um, with the support of the SoCan Foundation as well as the Canada Council for the Arts. And so we're able to um, yeah to do a, a big a major overhaul, improvements to the navigation, to the to the system, to the just the interface. You know, you can create your own playlists on this now. Um, there's over 3,000 works in it, and one of the things that we've just implemented actually is called Spotlight. And so we have uh, either a project or um, a composer or a set of works that are that are featured in a Spotlight on a for a for a time, uh, a specific time period. Could be a month or or more. So, out of curiosity, how, how does that Spotlight uh, get shown? Like, where, who's who's directing that Spotlight? Well, we make cho- we make choices based on just whatever's whatever's. It could be anything. If we could we could, for example, for the next uh, edition uh, of JTTP, the deadline of which is is May first, um, we could feature the winners in that. So they, they would go in rotation, and the spotlight appears right at the top of the page mm. when you when you land on Sonus.ca. The first one that we've done is is to uh, celebrate Barry Truax. Who is uh, was recognized last year as uh, by the CEC's board as a, uh, he's been um, uh, added as, as an honorary member. He's been a member for a number of years, and so he's now an honorary member. And in celebration of his 50 years of electroacoustic practices, he submitted 50 works to Sonus. So there's, there's a, a huge uh, wow. chunk of his music that you can now hear on on Sonus. So he's he's uh, right up top of the of the page on, on when you land on Sonus. And is it kind of a, a career-spanning selection of, of works? Like, is it a pretty like 
broad uh, period of time over which he's created these works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, it's it, it goes back to I don't recall exactly. I believe it goes back to something like seventy six or seventy seven. The first work uh, that, that he that, that he has on on Sonus. That's wow. a, it's a really wide spectrum of, of of all of his practices for the last fifty years. That's fantastic. And you said yeah, yeah. this goes back. This is all of the entrants for, for the last ten years for the Jutetan. We have all the uh, well, actually, for the last uh, twenty years now, 20, since okay. uh, since two thousand. Two thousand was the first JTTP. At the time, it was called Young and Emerging Sound Artists uh, Competition, and so all of the works back to to that point. There are something like it varies each year, but we get but anywhere from from fifteen to thirty five submissions, sometimes up to fifty. So there's a uh, hours and hours and hours of of submissions to. Um, to JTTP that you can hear on Sonus, and it's not limited to Sonus. It's it's an open uh, jukebox, so anybody from around the world can submit to it. Right on. Now the compositions this year, like uh, numbers of entries, about what you kind of have come to expect, or have you have you noticed any trends in terms of that? It's fairly stable, yeah. Each yeah. year, it's a it's a, a pretty stable thing. I mean, it, the project has gotten to the point where it's quite well known within the community. The um, the uh, educators, you know, who, who are involved in teaching electroacoustics and related practices and media arts and this sort of thing, they're they're aware of this. They know that it comes up each year, and so they're, as we're assuming, they're letting their their uh, their students know. Um, we post it on our Facebook page as well. Um, we do a big email send out to remind people about this every year. So it's it's pretty stable. The amount of works that we get. As far as you mentioned educators, like, do you find that there are champions of the of the CEC or of this this competition amongst educators that are kind of like uh, guiding uh, up and comers towards this, or like, do you, do you find like there's kind of like a feeder system of it, of any sort? There's uh, yeah, there's there are some people who are who are quite well known and and in 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 their work and and for their teaching. Um, I mean, there's a number of people in Montreal, obviously, you know, Jean Pichet was, uh, uh, was one for a number of years. He's, um, always been a, a strong supporter. We have Nicolas Bernier at, the um, um, Université de Montréal. Uh, he's quite active. He was also the guest editor for, um, one of our recent issues on, on light and sound in, uh, e-contact, the online journal. Then there's uh, Louis Dufort, who's also in Montreal. Barry Truax, when he was still teaching uh, out in Vancouver. Um, there's Scott, Scott Smallwood in Edmonton. Um, Andrew Stanilad out out uh, out east. And yeah, uh, I think they're they're. I, I can't speak exactly to, to how <laughs> how proactive they are in 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 uh, informing the students about it, but certainly we get you know we do get uh, submissions by their students. Um, we have quite a good contact with the, with the younger and up, upcoming generation of, of uh, practitioners as well through social media. So it's possible that they learn it, learn through it through, through that, through their uh, teachers, through the school, through their colleagues, or through the, the lists or, or social media that we post to. Right. Now, as far as the compositions this, this year, uh, among the winners, was there any kind of like through line or like, you know, any, Anything you could see or discern as, as far as uh, either the compositions themselves or the way in which they were created that, that, you know, like, is there a trend, let's say, in in the... I don't, I wouldn't say that there's, a, that there's necessarily an aesthetic trend. I mean, there's, 
there's there's a certain uh, there's some there's certain tendencies within the electroacoustic milieu within Canada across across Canada, mm-hmm. uh, and that varies, of course, according to the school that they go to. Montreal being a much more pure acousmatic approach uh, the, when Barry Tuax was teaching, especially, but the, the, this remains still to today that there would be a um, the influence of acoustic ecology. So it's it's quite it's quite varied this stuff. We get some some stuff by people who are also doing live stuff, not just pure acousmatic. Um, uh, sound works, so it's it's quite varied, and we're you know we're working on on improving the the, the sort of breadth of coverage that we have in this project. Um, it does tend towards acousmatic works, and there's a perception that the that the project is specific to acousmatic works, but the, but it's actually as with all all CEC projects, it's open to uh, to a wide variety of genres and approaches to to creation. So. That's uh, and so we hope that that's that's going to be improving over the next couple of years as people as we make it clearer that it's not uh, a specific aesthetic that we're looking for in the project. So is that something you're trying to address through messaging on social media and stuff like that? Is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah we've we've uh, I mean for a number of years we've had, we've spe- specified on our on our about page and on on the website uh, the range of 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 approaches to electroacoustic creation that we that we support our view is that electroacoustic isn't isn't an aesthetic in and of itself but that it's an umbrella term that covers everything from pure acousmatic music computer music uh, tape music live electronics uh, glitch hacking and 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 far beyond that so uh, video music um, and we we accept also for the project we accept multi-channel works so that's something that's that's becoming a little bit more popular each year. We're noticing a few more a, a few more uh, submissions each year that are in multi-channel formats. So when you have this this large umbrella that the you know several people are are underneath uh, determining you know the winning compositions. What what kind of group are you are you drawing on to kind of uh, adjudicate? Uh, we have a pool of uh, of jurors who have been serving on on the juries. Over the years, um, that's something that we we constantly add people sort of to the pool. I, I believe there's there's a there's 100 and 100 or 120 people that have have over the years participated in it. Um, some of those people come back on a regular basis and are and are always keen to to, to help out. And we we ask you know colleagues or our board members um, for names every once in a while as well. Uh, when we see that we need to to, to redress certain, uh, to make sure that there's a good balance on the jury, for example, a few years ago there was a there was a you know a number of efforts that were made to to get a uh, 50-50 gender balance on the on the jury, as well as getting more people from from a more diverse background than than academic electroacoustic music on the jury. Mm-hmm. So that's something that just we've got this pool, but then we 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 sort of keep feeding new names into it over the years. Right. Now the winning, we, yeah, we try oh. to make sure that it that it stays uh, sort of uh, actual, like that it's that it's uh, relevant to what's going on today. So as the as the changes in practices happen, we try to get people who are who are capable of you know uh, judging works that come from these different kinds of practices on the jury as well. Right, you don't have like a Renaissance uh, specialist uh, adjudicating, you know, contem- no, no. <laughs> contemporary art or something. Um, yeah, but there might be a secondary interest of one of the jurors, but mm-hmm. but no, they're, they're no, all, exactly, they're all uh, yeah. Uh, so as as far as the the winning compositions this year, 
Uh, wondering if you can kind of give us a little little uh, bit of a, a, a background, particularly on, on, on the winning composition, but just kind of the, the, the five finalists. Um, well, there's, as I mentioned earlier, there's the, um, the sort of the increase in, in multi-channel works. So we've got um, Valentin Stipe, he's the, the fourth, uh, fourth place winner. He's done a, a five-channel work. And the first prize winner this year, uh, Nicola Giannini, he's got um, an eight-channel work that uh, his specialization and his studies is actually uh, the potential of multi-channel configurations. So... There's those two, and uh, this year I should mention that there are actually six winners because there was a tie for fifth. Mm, yes. So um, that happens every four or five years that we have a tie in one of the positions. So, um, As someone who makes an annual list uh, for my top 20, I totally get you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, well, in our case... Um, yeah, in your case, that would be those. Those would be those would be very personal uh, uh, choices. And in our case, the jury, uh, which I didn't mention earlier, the jury is is entirely anonymous. So it's uh, they aren't aware of who the people are. They get the they get the title and the program notes, and that's it. So right. They're judging the works entirely on 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 the merit of the compositions themselves of the of the works themselves. Uh, sorry. And so then uh, the winning composition you said was an eight channel. Yeah. Uh, is that just out of curiosity, in terms of like numbers of channels at this point of like multi-channel, like is is that one of the higher numbers of channels in terms of you've seen as entry, or like is this kind of where things line up in terms of multi-channel composition? No, they're fairly they're it's fairly predictable. Every once in a while, we might get a sort of an outlier, so to speak. But there, I mean, there are some fairly standard or what have become fairly standard configurations. So the mm-hmm. eight-channel work. This is this is a configuration that you're fairly likely to be able to come across if you're if you're going to be presenting your work somewhere um you know it's 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 either the, the places that electroacoustic music is presented have uh, an eight channel setup or they may have uh, a multi-speaker setup that could go up to 32 uh, independent channels or something but with with the possibility of configuring um eight channel sub configurations that can be called up uh, relatively easily so that the, the eight channel is is it's it's long been a fairly standard format in in electroacoustic um, practices. Uh, then of course there's 5.1, which came out uh, through um, DVD, uh, the development of DVD, and there's still people uh, composing in 5.1. Mm-hmm. Um, those are those are kind of the two, like the 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 most common multi-channel formats that we're, that we're encountering in any case in the in the in the JTTP project. Right. Now, you mentioned uh, May is the next deadline? Yeah. Each year, it's uh, the 1st of May is the deadline for the, for the new, uh, for the new uh, uh, competition and project. And where, if, for folks who are interested in it, uh, where should people go to, to get more information on, on the deadline and the, and the applications? Uh, either to the CEC's website or the CEC's Facebook page, both of which have CEC.sonus in them. So cec.sonus.ca is the website for the Canadian Electroacoustic Community, and then the Facebook um, handle or whatever is cec.sonus as well. Perfect. So uh, we post everything on on uh, with the, for the you know, for deadlines for um, release of journal issues for the results of um, JTTV, also for the the different events that are that are uh, booked during the year, like the the, the radio broadcast that we 
that we coordinate around the world for the for the JTTP winners. Mm-hmm. All that's posted on uh, on our Facebook page. But the the call is basically up um, and available. Usually, uh, Yves Gigon, my colleague uh, in Montreal, who's uh, he's, he takes care of all the websites and all the the audio and, and video and media uh, production for the CEC. He usually updates the page uh, shortly after um, each edition. So. You can find the information online immediately, like after the the, the, the edition. So, but it's always the first of May, and the results come out in June, mid June. All right. Well, we will uh, keep our eye on that, and and uh, once again, thank you for uh, for joining us. This has become a great annual tradition to to have you on and to feature the the winning works here. Uh, so, and you mentioned Sonus.ca for folks who wanted to listen to Spotlight and all of the previous year's compositions and, and that's a, exactly. a really great development i think yeah no it's it's uh, and we're, we're really happy with this up, upgrade to the interface it was it was well needed and and we're, we're very happy to have gotten support from the socan foundation and the canada council for the arts for uh, two major upgrades on that this year and if you go to the the cec's website you've got you've got like very very uh quick links to all of the projects jttp sonus um there's a, a sort of a unified look across the the different areas of the CEC's sort of uh, uh, umbrella website, but uh, they're, they're easy to navigate between one another. All right. Well, Jeff, uh, thanks very much for joining us here, and, uh, and take thanks, care. Michael. Okay, you too.
Pulsate, 